On November 14th in Washington, D.C., the McDonald Laurier Institute launched a new initiative, the Center for North American Prosperity and Security, or Synapse. As part of the launch event, MLI's managing director, Brian Lee Crowley, delivered remarks outlining the desperate need for an honest, adult conversation between the United States and Canada. On this special episode of Inside Policy Talks, you'll hear Brian's speech in full. Well, ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I want to thank uh, John Walters for that uh, uh, kind introduction. Um, I discovered when I went into John's office before the event started that like so many people I've met in Washington, there's a Canadian connection. John's father was a Canadian and uh, only became uh, uh, an American citizen uh, during the uh, uh, Second World War when he was sort of pressed into military service. Uh, um, and I also want to thank Matt, someone that uh, I came to know and admire uh, during his time at the, uh, the American Embassy. Um, ladies and gentlemen, when I was an undergraduate at McGill, I used to attend lectures by my mentor, the grand old man of Canadian government studies, Professor J.R. Mallory. And the subject matter, while enlightening, tended to be a bit on the dry side. So to liven things up, one day some wagon class advertised in the student newspaper, the McGill Daily, that there was to be a screening of a famous porn film uh, in my lecture hall at the time and place of Mallory's next lecture. Mallory, blissfully unaware he did not read the McGill Daily, showed up and looked out at the sea of rest of an expectant faces, completely deadpan, and said, I don't know why you're here, but I'm here to lecture about the government of Canada. Now, I know how he felt, because I look out at this room, full of expectant faces, and I cannot help asking, are you sure you're in the right room? You know that this is the talk about Canada, right? Because if you are in the right room, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm a serious person who worries about the state of the world, America's place in that world, and the serious problems that America faces in using its immense power wisely and effectively. And in that mental landscape, Canada isn't even a blip. I worry about problems America faces, and Canada is not one of those problems. And that's why, of course, the winner of the New York Times contest to find the world's most boring headline was Worthwhile Canadian Initiative. It's also why the chapter about Canada in a post-war book about American foreign policy was entitled Canada, Stern Voice of the Daughter of God, <laughs> thereby perfectly encapsulating official Washington's view of Canada as a relatively harmless but tiresomely censorious scold, constantly wagging a moralistic finger in America's face. Vaguely annoying, but safely ignored, unless, of course, it causes domestic political embarrassment. And that was the case when one of our former prime ministers, Lester Pearson, went to an American university while he was prime minister, and delivered a, she, a, a speech sharply critical 
of American policy in Vietnam. Soon afterwards, he was so ill-advised that he went for a visit to the White House, where Lyndon Johnson grabbed the diminutive Pearson by the lapels, lifted him off his feet, and thundered in his face, don't piss on my rug. A typical Johnsonianism. Well, I'm here. I'm here as the head of Canada's most prominent national public policy think tank to say to you that it is time for a new era in Canada-US relations, one that is no longer based on this kind of comfortable mythology that we repeat endlessly to each other about eternal friendship, shared history, and undefended borders. Foreign policy is founded on interests, not vague sentiments. And America's attitude towards Canada fails to serve America's interests in two ways. First, your unfamiliarity, your unfamiliarity with and complacency about Canada exposes you to risks here in the North American heartland that you are managing poorly. And you can only fix this by seeing Canada as it really is. Second, that same lack of awareness about Canada blinds you to how Canada can be the solution to some of America's most pressing problems. But also, that Canada will not solve those problems unprompted. You have to speak up. You have to speak up. In the short time I have available to me, I want to give one example of each of these ways in which America is failing to act on its own interests with respect to Canada. I mentioned that American complacency with respect to Canada is exposing you to risks here in North America. These risks are not primarily economic, but revolve around national security. The last decade has seen a dawning realization here in Washington of the dangers posed by a resurgent China, heading a group of authoritarian revisionists that includes Russia and Iran, amongst others. And these countries chafe under a rules-based international order that thwarts their will and imposes moral, diplomatic, economic, and military penalties on violators, such as happened to Russia following its invasion of Ukraine. They long for a return to unrestrained, Hobbesian, great power competition. The United States has risen impressively, if a bit slowly, to this challenge. It's provided notable levels of support to Ukraine, spearheaded and embraced in innovative arrangements like the, the Quad and AUKUS in the Indo-Pacific, and bilateral defense cooperation agreements and NATO expansion to deter Russian aggression in, NATO, in, in Europe. Moreover, it has become the world's largest oil producer and LNG exporter, providing a lifeline to a Europe compelled to reduce its reliance on Russian gas. Canada, in marked contrast, is fast becoming an honorary third world country from a national security point of view. This is due at least in part to a benign neglect of Canada by Washington, thereby encouraging the belief in Ottawa that Canada can embrace China and indulge in domestic diaspora politics with impunity. Our contribution to joint continental defense via NORAD 
is dilapidated, while Russian and Chinese advances in hypersonic weapon systems are making North America vulnerable. After the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Canada announced it would spend almost $5 billion over six years to improve our capabilities. But progress is glacial. The will to buy desperately needed new weapon systems is lacking, hence the more than a decade that it took us to decide to purchase F-35 fighters. When the leaders of Japan and Germany came and begged Canada to make more of its abundant energy resources available, they were sent away empty-handed. Canada's military spending is two-thirds of NATO's target of 2% of GDP and a fraction of the United States spending. Our Prime Minister has privately told NATO leaders he has no intention of meeting that target. In fact, the latest spending review by Ottawa just announced has singled out defense for further cuts. Canada's top soldier, General Wayne Eyre, lamented recently that he doubts our capacity to lead a mooted mission to Haiti our military already being stretched thin by its modest contribution to Ukraine and leadership of the NATO mission in Latvia. One of our top defense experts at MLI, Richard Shamuka, wrote recently, and I quote, political decisions have simultaneously over-deployed the Canadian Armed Forces while neglecting to invest in its capabilities. This has upset the fragile sustainment system, leaving its actual operational capability in tatters. And here's the kicker. The military has become a token force abroad and is even unlikely to be able to provide for Canada's own defense in the near future. To provide for Canada's own defense in the near future. This is the view not of some attention-seeking junior congressman here in Washington, but it's the sober assessment of one of Canada's most distinguished defense analysts. Compare this to the renewed commitment of Australia and the UK under AUKUS to buy nuclear submarines, embrace unprecedented levels of technological and command cooperation, and to increase significantly their military spending in consequence. Canada's response to these shifts has been tepid, slow, and condescending. Once upon a time, Canada's absence from these vital developments might have been explained by the political sensitivities of being seen as too close to the United States, or maybe the need to manage the independence movement in Quebec. These traditional explanations are now taking a back seat to revelations of the extent of China's penetration of Canada's institutions at every level, including the political parties. Canada's security services have been sounding the alarm on China's growing inter interference and nefarious activities for decades. Indifference, and hostility have been Ottawa's official response. Recently leaked intelligence assessments that the Chinese Communist Party United Front operatives were working actively to influence the results of elections at every level have finally caused the public to take notice of the Chinese Communist Party's clandestine activities in Canada. Canada is now so compromised that Canada's intelligence sharing allies, particularly in the Five Eyes Alliance, quietly wonder if it is safe to share sensitive information with Canada, and I'm here to tell you that they are right to have these doubts. 
I could go on, but the second half of today's event is dedicated to a session where our top China expert, Charles Burton, will discuss with Hudson's Miles Yu the China problem and its significance in the Canada-US relationship. To close off this part of my remarks, let me just say that job one for America is rallying the liberal democracies against the depredations of China-led authoritarians. Yet Washington faces the real possibility that its northern neighbor won't just fail to shoulder its share of the load. Its institutions may be so compromised as to be unable to act in the interests of the West. It's time for America to start doing its part to arrest Canada's slow motion defection by reversing the neglect, complacency, and dismissiveness that have helped to create it. As Prime Minister Justin Trudeau likes to say, better is always possible. But on the Canada-US front, better will only happen if both sides get more businesslike and more demanding in this relationship. And it is to encourage this adult discussion that my think tank, the McDonald Laurier Institute, is here today at the invitation of the Hudson Institute to launch our, our new US operation, the Center for North American Prosperity and Security, or Synapse. Before I go on to the second half of my talk, where I will look at how Canada can be a solution to some of America's problems, let me open a small parenthesis here and tell you with the help of the folks here at Hudson, a little bit about my institute. There is a soundtrack, by the way. As the most think tank op-eds in the national and international media, 340 last year, has led the national conversation on vital issues like reconciliation with indigenous people, Russian disinformation, the Ukrainian invasion, and China's malign influence in Canada. We are the only Canadian think tank blacklisted by both Russia and China. And in fact, the Kremlin has sanctioned eight of our senior fellows, more than almost any other think tank in the world. We've been threatened with lawfare, with attacks on our website, and more. Is this any way to treat nice Canadians? As Canada's leading think tank, we've known for years that what happens in America affects our country deeply. And we've been very present in the United States, bringing, for example, a former prime minister to Washington to launch our book about what America could learn from Canada's fiscal reforms of the 1990s. You've seen our op-eds everywhere in the United States, in the Wall Street Journal, in Real Clear Politics, in The Hill, in The National Review, in The Washington Examiner, and The Washington Times. You've seen us commenting on the news, bringing clarity to American audiences on issues we know about, in The New York Times, on CNN, on CNBC, on ABC. Former Canadian ambassador to the United States, Derek Burney says, MLI's work is a remarkable gut punch that should serve as a wake-up call. And former U.S. Ambassador to Canada, 
David Wilkins, notes that MLI's Washington Initiative is a timely forum to further the shared interests of Canada and the United States, ensure our countries are safe and prosperous, and hold our leaders accountable. We become increasingly concerned that our two countries are pursuing divergent paths, not out of mutual hostility, but mutual indifference and ignorance. We think Canada and the United States can be better together, but only if, as true friends do, we tell each other the truth. The truth about how we see the world, the truth about what we need from each other, and most importantly, the truth about who we really are, not as we are portrayed in myths and stereotypes. It's for these reasons that MLI is opening its Washington office, the Center for North American Prosperity and Security, or Synapse, to lead that adult conversation that Canadians and Americans so badly need. So, as I like to say, you may not have heard of MLI, but Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping have. I mentioned at the outset of my talk that there were two things going on in the Canada-US relationship that required American attention but weren't getting it. Before the video, I talked about ways in which Canada was engaging in a slow motion defection from the Western Democratic Alliance, a policy of which America seems barely aware. In fact, Washington's ambassador in Ottawa has recently been defending the government of Canada's defense, shameful and indefensible levels of defense spending. And this gives comfort to those happy to see Canada inching out of America's orbit and frustrates those of us pressing Ottawa to live up to its vital commitments to its democratic friends and allies in an increasingly dark and dangerous world. If America's representative to Canada doesn't see a problem but merely repeats the government's talking points, it makes it doubly hard to shake Ottawa out of its dogmatic slumbers. But I also promised to talk about the ways in which Canada can, often unbeknownst to America, be the solution to some of its most troubling problems. I've only got time for one example, so let's talk about energy. Energy is the lifeblood of our economies and therefore of our security. By a combination of good luck and capitalist ingenuity, North America is perhaps the most energy secure continent in the world. Many of Canada's biggest energy companies, such as Enbridge, TC Energy, Synovus, and, and Cameco, are truly North American companies and are betting on our nations continuing to grow and prosper together. What many Americans don't realize is the extent to which American energy dependence is based on interdependence between our two countries. Canada may leave much to be desired in terms of defense spending and telling friend from adversary on the international stage, but when it comes to our joint energy security, Canada makes an outsized contribution and could do even more. The two-way energy trade between Canada and the United States hit a new record last year reaching $190 billion, $190 billion in two-way energy trade between our two countries. And most of that trade, over 80% of it, flows from Canada to the United States, primarily in the form of crude oil, but with significant natural gas and electricity exports as well. Now, a lot of you will know that the shale revolution changed the American and global energy landscape. 
You went from the world's largest importer to the world's largest producer of oil and a net exporter. You added an entire Saudi Arabia's worth of production to your tallies. And this was undeniably good for the world and good for consumers. And we do not credit cheap American shale nearly enough for the economic growth and low inflation that the world has enjoyed throughout most of the 2010s uh, until Russia invaded Ukraine. But as vital as the shale oil revolution has been for American energy security, it does not and cannot change the fact that not all barrels of oil are created equal. For example, the United States produces virtually no heavy oil, yet many of this country's refineries, especially on the Gulf Coast, require heavy oil for their feedstock. Most of the heavy oil that supplies these refineries comes from Canada and cannot be replaced by shale oil. That explains both why Canada is far and away the largest exporter of oil to America and why America can thank Canada for the fact that it is now a net exporter of oil. But the shale revolution also caused difficulties for Canada. We used to, uh, we were used to you wanting every drop of oil that we could produce and never bothered to build any export capacity beyond North America. To this day, and until the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, to the West Coast, uh, the, the expansion comes online in a few months, about 96% of our oil exports go to the United States. Your main response to the flood of new shale oil was to reduce your imports from authoritarian states, while Canada's share has actually grown. And today, over 60% of the oil that America imports, about a quarter of your total consumption, comes from Canada, about 4.5 million barrels of oil a day, which is more than twice as much as Mexico, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Colombia combined. And the volume of oil that you need from Canada may well need to grow. Just as shale production grew swiftly, it looks like it may start to be on the decline. But even if technology prolongs the shale revolution, you still have the problem that shale oil cannot supply a major part of your refining sector. And all of that gives a special significance to the fact that Canada's oil sands represent the world's third largest reserves and have hundreds of years of production ahead of them at current rates of decline. Regardless of what happens with shale, American energy independence cannot be threatened as long as it is understood to be North American energy independence. Can you be environmentally responsible and still rely on Canadian oil? Absolutely. All heavy oil production, including Canada's, emits a lot of greenhouse gases. But Canada's largest oil companies are working together to achieve net zero by 2050 and have credible plans based on a projected $75 billion investment in carbon capture, nuclear energy, and other strategies to achieve that goal of net zero. But friends tell friends the truth. And I have to tell you that Canadians have noticed that although you limited Canadian oil imports when President Biden revoked the Keystone XL pipeline's permit, you recently eased sanctions on Venezuela uh, so that it could send its oil to the United States. Venezuela too produces heavy oil, but its oil production process is literally, literally the dirtiest in the world. The dirtiest in the world. And while you thumbed your nose, allegedly on environmental grounds, at Canadian oil, you were quick to embrace oil from one of Latin America's most odious dictatorships when prices started to rise at the pump 
and there wasn't much room left to draw down your strategic oil reserves. This mistake will have to be fixed at some point, and when it is, we will have to confront one of the major challenges ahead, which is to rebuild the confidence amongst North American pipeline companies that cross-border infrastructure will never again be treated as a political football for short-term political gain. Let's talk about natural gas. The shale revolution not only increased oil, but natural gas production as well. It enabled you to become the world's top exporter of LNG. Canada is finally, belatedly, going to join the ranks of global LNG exporters in 2025, when uh, the big uh, LNG Canada project in Kitimat, British Columbia, is finished. While your production growth has been impressive, here too, your success has been underpinned by Canada. The United States still has net imports of about 5 billion cubic feet of Canadian natural gas a day. That's just shy of the amount that Germany used to, used to import from Russia through Nord Stream 1. And that's helped to keep your domestic prices reasonable and provided a, an important domestic supply backstop as more of your own production is shipped abroad. Of course, Canada's energy potential isn't only of significance to the United States. I've already mentioned that the heads of the governments of both Japan and Germany were in Canada recently pleading with Canada to make its natural uh, energy resources available to them, and they were sent away empty-handed. Yet the geostrategic significance of Canada's energy can hardly be overstated, and not just for America. I was in Taiwan not too long ago, and I met with the the Taiwanese Minister of Trade. And after he gave me the usual stuff about, oh, you know, uh, we love to meet nice Canadians, I said, well, that's, that's all very well and good, but have you ever considered how Canada could contribute to lessening Taiwan's number one vulnerability? He said, what's our biggest vulnerability? I said, it's the fact that so much of your energy comes in ships that have to travel from the Middle East through the Straits of Hormuz, under the shadow of Iranian missiles, pass through pirate-infested waters and the choke point of the Straits of Malacca into the recently militarized South China Sea, increasingly dominated by China. Oil and natural gas from Canada, by contrast, would come straight across the North Pacific under the protection of the US fleet. Something analogous could be said about Canadian energy headed to Japan, Europe, and elsewhere. Autocratic regimes from Russia to the Middle East profit both strategically and economically from Western dependence on their oil and gas, yet America and its allies do too little to press Canada to make available the vast energy resources it controls, resources which could change the energy balance of power worldwide. Don't have time to delve into the vital trans-border electricity market, where again, American consumption floats on a Canadian buffer that will not survive unless we consciously cultivate it. I will, however, take just a moment to look at nuclear. Nuclear energy is undergoing a renaissance and offers great promise uh, um, to uh, uh, enhance energy security while lowering GHG emissions. The United States is already the largest nuclear power producer. Canada is sixth and advances in nuclear technology with fourth-generation uh, reactors, promises to unleash even more potential and new applications beyond uh, 
on-grid power generation, et cetera, et cetera. Canada and the United States have a huge opportunity to be leaders of this renaissance, not only because we're both incumbents, but because nuclear energy is still controversial in many parts of Europe and Australia, and we can assume market share while they dither. Here again, Canada is or can be the solution to some of America's challenges. We're the, largest, we're the second largest exporter of uranium in the world. We host the richest uranium reserves in the world. And like many other critical minerals, the extraction and processing of uranium is being done wholly in North America. With all this interdependence on the energy front, naturally there's vulnerability as well. America needs Canada to be your most reliable supplier of energy. But there are headwinds from Ottawa's direction that risk tripping up the unwary. First among these is the federal government's proposed emissions cap. Ottawa plans to single out the Canadian oil and gas sector, requiring them to cut their emissions by an eye-watering 42% below 2019 levels by 2030. That's only a few short years away. And although the oil and gas industry has invested heavily in emissions reductions, and GHG intensity per barrel fell by a fifth between 2009 and 2020, there is no way to meet this new target without cutting Canadian oil production. S&P Global has calculated that 1.3 million barrels a day in Canadian output will need to be slashed in order to meet this target. And because 96% of Canadian oil exports currently go to the United States, pretty much that entire amount will have to come out of American supplies. The second is the federal government's proposed clean electricity regulations, with the net result of which will be that we will produce less electricity, but consume a lot more of it. And it's hard to see how we can continue to export 60 terawatt, uh, terawatt uh, hours a year to the United States under such circumstances. And I hardly need to spell out to this audience what the likely effects will be on American electricity consumers. All of us here today have a shared goal of ensuring that Canada is a reliable supplier of all forms of energy to the United States. It's a cornerstone of our mutual prosperity, stability, and independence from autocratic regimes. And I urge you, I urge you to pay attention to what Canada is doing on the energy front and to be more vocal in ensuring that Ottawa's decisions take full account of their impacts on North American energy security because I assure you that that is the furthest thing from Ottawa's mind today, and I fear the consequences for all of us. To conclude my remarks, ladies and gentlemen, that in a nutshell is why we believe at MLI and at Synapse that both Canada and America need my institute's new center here in Washington. For good or ill, our national interests are deeply intertwined. But America is too preoccupied with domestic politics and global crises to think strategically about how our shared national interests can be pursued together, whether on defense, national security, the Arctic, energy, critical minerals, intellectual property, pharmaceutical and other healthcare policies, or a host of other issues. Ottawa, on the other hand, finds that American neglect and inattention gives it license to make decisions that affect us all, driven by transactional and transitory domestic political considerations, rather than the strategic advantages 
that can ensure North America continues to be the envy of the world and the bulwark of liberal democracies everywhere. It's long been the view of my institute that if you want to change the world for the better, you not only have to have a better idea, but you have to have the attention of policymakers, opinion leaders, and voters for that idea. We work tirelessly to make bad public policy unacceptable in Ottawa. But it has now become clear to us that poor policy in Ottawa is often aided and abetted by Washington's complacency and unwarranted presumption of knowledge about us. Better policy in Ottawa, surprisingly, often goes hand in hand with a Washington more mindful of the potential of our shared continent and willing to speak up about what America needs from the partnership. Now, this is no plea for America to bully Canada. On the contrary, as a former Canadian foreign minister of the liberal persuasion said to me just the other day, he said, countries don't have friends, they have interests. If you want a friend, get a dog. My belief has always been that Canada succeeds as a middle power by being useful. If we are no longer useful in a strategic sense, then we don't have a lot to offer other than our resources. And at this point, we seem to take pride in our inability to talk with key global powers, preferring to wag our moralistic finger and lecture others. That, combined with our chronic failure to meet our defense capability requirements, makes us of little importance in DC politics. Well, we at MLI, and now at Synapse, believe this to be profoundly true. If Canada wants to have real influence in the world, if we want to have our needs met, we have to be useful to the countries that matter. And the United States matters more to us than the rest of the world put together. Being honest with each other and truthful about what we really need is no dilution of our sovereignty, but the condition for both of us to realize our national interests. Washington and Ottawa will now have a conduit that will fearlessly tell both sides what the other needs and why to ensure our shared continent remains a beacon of security and prosperity to the world. That is our promise to you. It is our deepest hope and fondest wish that Canada-US relations will never be the same again. Thank you. <laughs>